Hey, it's great to see all of you. I almost had you guys say, like, turn around and give someone a hug and shake hands. And then I'm like, is that, I don't think that's appropriate. So welcome. We are here. Uh, and this is a gift to be able to gather. Uh, and God is moving. You know, I've been reflecting a lot on this last year. And I truly believe, uh, you know, I think that some of us, can say this has been a really hard year and this has been a year where it seems like God has been absent but let me just remind you that you couldn't speak of God's absence unless you knew what his presence was Uh, and has he been absent or has he been revealing to us the the reality or the depth or the lack thereof of the faith that we are called to exercise because when things get difficult, that becomes the true revealer of the strength of our dependence upon King Jesus. How real is Jesus to us? I heard a preacher once, I think it was Leonard Ravenhill, and he was, he was a bit snarky, uh, Scottish revivalist. Uh, he said, if God died today, would anything change for you tomorrow? And I found that that sentiment or even that statement kind of offensive but actually the more I've thought about it I think it's an appropriate question for us to ask ourselves I don't know if I would ask it quite in that way but I would ask the question is how real is Jesus to you in these times is this been a time of which you've turned to him and clung to him and and recognized that without him we are truly lost because in in this year that we just have lived through literally it's been almost exactly a year since we were since we stopped it's been a little over a year since we stopped gathering in in the full ability to gather Uh, and I think about Good Friday last year of me just speaking into a camera with no one here uh, to this moment now and as I thought through what God has done and what he is doing I actually found myself getting excited because I believe that this is going to be a season of, of God kind of purging from our lives uh, the idols that hinder us from experiencing the joy that he is after in our lives. The, the ways that we rely so heavily upon um, the things of this world to answer, answer questions that only a right relationship with Christ and a centrality in the gospel can answer. In a, in a year of political kind of turmoil and, and racial tensions and unrest and COVID, uh, it's become more and more clear and, and, uh, and absolutely evident that the world cannot give us the answers to the dilemmas of human existence. There's nothing to say to those things, but Jesus has everything to say to those dilemmas. And we don't have to answer the question of why do we suffer? Because what we can say is, I don't know why we suffer, but I do know that Jesus has entered into that suffering and made it his own. And this is why we come together on Good Friday. For Good Friday is the night that we gather as a community to remember the cross. I would argue that we should probably practice Good Friday every day uh, because the cross is the center of the Christian faith. P.T. Forsyth, one of my favorite theologians, uh, English theologian uh, who lived from about 1860 to about 1930, uh, once wrote that Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. 
Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. That's why I often say that if we remove the cross from the center of our faith, we actually drain Christianity of its blood. The cross is not something that we look through, it's something that we continually look to. Because as, as Robert Farrar Capone said, if humanity was able to live its way to salvation, it would have a long time ago. But it is not capable of living its way towards salvation. It can only die its way there, lose its way there. For the gospel is about a God who has intervened, who has entered in to our brokenness, into our lost condition and made it his own. Jesus didn't just simply identify with our humanity. He actually has identified with our lowest point, our sin. And this is why I want us to consider tonight the first word from the cross. The first word from the cross, Jesus spoke seven words, and uh, I've been working kind of feverishly on I don't know if you guys knew, but I, I did sign a book deal last August. I've been reluctant to say it because it's so stressful uh, to actually have to write it. It was really exciting to get the deal, and then it was immediately like, what have I done? Um, but I'm working on a book on the seven statements of the cross, and it's called The Good Death. And really, it's a, it, it is uh, looking at what I would argue are these seven words that Jesus speaks uh, that each word that he speaks wields what I call a death blow to one arena of our life. And the first one is, is the death of innocence. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you look at the first word that Jesus speaks, we are told in Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through, through 34, it says, and when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right side and one on his left. And what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a powerful proclamation and central to the Christian faith because what it reveals is God's desire to forgive, but it also is a revelation of human guilt, brokenness, impotence, the lack of innocence. For we can't ask for forgiveness if we don't recognize that we're guilty. And the thing that Jesus points out is that, that they don't know what they're doing, but he says, forgive them, which means that their ignorance is not innocence. And I think that's very important for us to understand because this statement reveals the unbelievable, radical, one-way love of God, his gracious movement toward us in our brokenness, that God loves us not because we're lovable, but because it's his nature to do so. But at the same time, it reveals that sin, which is human rebellion against God's rule and a rejection against his of, of his grace, it's not, it's not the little things you do wrong. The little things that we do wrong, the violation, the moral violations, the ways that we lie to ourselves and lie to others, the, the things that we enter into. I mean, we like to think of sin as the person doing heroin or that husband that cheated on his wife or that person that looked at something they shouldn't have on the internet. Those are the, that's the outworking of a, of a heart that is in rebellion against God's rule. The little things we do wrong is the outcome of us making ourselves God. 
And the problem with that is that we make horrible masters. And this is why it says in Romans 1, therefore God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which were unfitting. That, that we were once slaves and dead, we are told, in our sin and trespasses. That sin has rendered us literally impotent in our ability to save ourselves or to even reach up to God in our own effort. A dead person can't cry out for help. They have to be resurrected. And, I, and we have to recognize that every aspect of the saving life of Jesus is a supernatural work that begins with God. God did the saving, you did the sinning. And the powerful statement here, and I think about this when we think about our last president, and I'm not interested in talking about politics, I'm only interested in talking about an interview because I think it gives an interesting perspective on, on how often people believe a lie, which is the, this idea that I am good by nature. Uh, he was asked by an evangelical leader um, if he had ever asked God for forgiveness. And he said, no, I don't think so. And I thought to myself, this man is proclaiming to be a Christian and yet he just stated that he's never asked God for forgiveness, which says that he fundamentally misunderstands the entire essence of the gospel. And that is, I don't need someone to forgive me because I haven't done anything wrong. Well, why would we need forgiveness if we haven't done anything wrong? And Jesus said, I don't have anything to offer to someone who doesn't need forgiveness. I don't have anything to offer to someone who thinks they're well. For I didn't come to seek and save those that are well. I came to seek and save those that are sick. And I think that this is the power of the gospel because it's an exploration of our desperate need for help and the power of forgiveness. It's, it is the death of innocence as well as the birth of forgiveness. It's both a revelation of human guilt as well as God's willingness to do something about it. It's easy to misread the words of Jesus as the gentle words of of the son who is getting between rebellious humanity and an angry father. And that may be your unfortunate picture of God, that God is an angry God who is ready to smash you to the ground. And thank goodness for Jesus to get between him and say, to say, Father, don't, don't kill them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the blame. That's, that's not what was going on on the cross. You can't do that without doing damage to the Godhead itself because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God and they are not divided against one another. For Jesus to proclaim the words, Father, forgive them, was for him to reveal to the world what the Father's heart toward us is. And if you want to know if God's heart toward a broken, sinful, and rebellious humanity is one of forgiveness, all you have to do is go back to the beginning of the story and look at Genesis and you see in the, in the story of our first parents and the fall that came through eating of the fruit, the desire to define for themselves what is right and wrong, sin entered into human existence. And what are we told is that they became aware of their nakedness and were ashamed. And what did they do? They hid. The first time you see the word walk in scripture is actually, is actually God walking in the garden. And he's not walking in, uh, in an attempt to clear his mind of the anger he feels toward our first parents. 
It's actually a walk toward them in their brokenness. It is not them that is looking for God. It is God who is looking for them in their lostness. And that picture of a God who forgives, a God who loves, a God who is gracious, this is consistent with what God declares about himself. When Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, what does God do? He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and he proclaims over Moses, the Lord, the Lord, your God, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. What a powerful proclamation. The first thing he doesn't say is that he's holy. The first thing he says is that he's loving. And I think that we need to understand this because the essence of the Christian life is that we worship and serve a God that on your worst day is crazy about you. And I always say that the only thing that can compel us to live a life that reflects Jesus is to believe in the depths of our being that there is nothing that we can do to separate ourselves from the love of God. I think that the power of this statement tells us that forgiveness is one of humanity's profoundest needs. The good news is that God in his freedom chooses to love sinners in their sin. I like what Rowan Williams, uh, the, the English uh, theologian, uh, I actually had the opportunity to hear him speak and he, he, he literally, like, he kind of reminds me of Einstein. He, 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 walked, he was brought out to speak to a group of about 60 pastors. It was very clear that he had no idea that he was coming out to talk to a group of people because he was all disheveled and, he, and, he, and he, he looked out and he was like, what are these people doing here? Why am I out here? And then they just said, can you share a few words? And in, in England, for believers in the UK, like, he's like, that's like seeing the Pope or something. I mean, he's, he's very, very respected. Uh, a really fascinating man. And he had, he kind of reminded me of the stories you hear of the Apostle John who, that were told, like the, the mythology around John was that at the very end of his life, he would get up in front of a congregation. He would say, beloved, love one another and then sit back down. That's kind of how Ron Williams was. He said these, uh, just a few very concise sentences and then walked out of the room without talking to anyone and it, but it was all about God loves you he's with you he's for you and his spirit is within you so live accordingly and then he walked away this is what he says in his book about the cross of Christ and I think it's very powerful he says the cross is a sign of the transcendental freedom of the love of God this is a God whose actions and whose reactions to us cannot be dictated by what we do. You can't trap, trick, or force God into behaving against his character. You can do what you like, but God is God. And if he wants to love and forgive, then he's going to love and forgive whether you like it or not because he alone is free. <laughs> I love that. God's freedom is a freedom to love sinners in their sin. That is the elective love of God. He chose you not at the exclusion of others. He chose you to be a vehicle of his love so that through you, he can reach more. That's the power, that's the logic of election. And that is the outworking of a God who loves us. And Jesus only spoke those things which pleased his father. So for him to say, Father, forgive them, that was speaking the very essence of the father's heart because he said, if you've seen me, you have seen the father. We don't have to ask what 
is God like behind the back of Jesus? Jesus is the revelation of what God is like. And everything that God has to say to humanity and continues to say to humanity is what he is and continues to say through his son. And this is why we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we see that there is the very heart of forgiveness. Today, the heart of God is an open wound of love, wrote Richard Foster. He aches over our distance and preoccupations. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He longs for our presence. How is this forgiveness possible? Here we see, unfortunately, the blindness of humanity. For they know not what they do is the words of Jesus. And as I've shared before, that beautiful paraphrasing of Psalm 14 uh, in Eugene Peterson's uh, The Message. He says, God sticks his head out of heaven. He looks around. He's looking for someone not stupid. One man, one woman, expectant, just one God-ready woman. And he comes up empty, a string of zeros. As I like to encourage you week after week that you are not bigger failures than God already knows that you are. This is the beauty of the gospel. Is that our impotence, our brokenness, our lostness, and our willingness to recognize that. And let me just say, you will not recognize your lostness unless God reveals it and illuminates it as the Spirit draws you toward him that our recognition that we need help, our willingness to confess, Lord Jesus, I am lost, save me. I am yours, save me. Means that our sin has the ability to be the very place where God meets us the most powerfully. Here we have a blindness that keeps us from recognizing our own brokenness. All sin essentially makes us ignorant, but ignorance is not innocence. And what we need to understand that sin is always sin in the sight of God, whether we are conscious of it or not, because sin is essentially missing the mark. It's not a measurement of how, of how bad you are. It's a measurement of how good you're not. It is a measurement up against God's holy and sinless character. And that reality tells us that we would not survive close examination. If we were to stand before God to defend our lives, we would not withstand close examination. I was having a conversation with my father uh, once who's, you know, I've shared with you over the years our journey of him coming to uh, some kind of semblance of a saving faith. And And I believe God is pursuing him. Uh, I would think the only reason Alexander White is still alive in the midst of his alcoholism and his chain smoking and his years of drug abuse is because God is a saving God. And And he is pursuing my father all the way to the grave. And my dad, once I was up in Alaska, and I asked him if he believed in hell, and he said, of course I do. And I'm like, really? And he goes, yes, I know so many people that should go there. And I said, well, dad, what about you? And he goes, no, I'm a good person. And I'm like, I'm like, but dad, you like, I mean, I don't think any of us are good. And I mean, I can give you some examples if you'd like of ways you are not good. Uh, 
how about not being there for me my entire life? Abandoning our family, choosing cocaine over your boys? What? Just throw those out as possible examples. He yelled some expletives at me and he says, when I spend time with you, I want to feel good, not bad. That was the end of the conversation. I think this speaks to a, a tendency of the human heart, and that is we live right now in, in an unbelievable uh, culture of, of victimization where we are victims of other people's problems. And it's not that we aren't victims at times. In fact, everyone in this room will be a victim. <laughs> and what I mean by that if we can use victim as loosely as our culture likes to use it. If we mean by victim is someone outside of your own head takes advantage of you, hurts you, misuses you, mistreats you, you're a victim and they're a victimizer. But I promise you, just as you will all be a victim at some point in your life to someone, you will probably also be a victimizer because human nature and the sinfulness of the human heart and our broken tendencies means that we will both play the victim and the victimizer. And the fact is, is that many of us uh, will, if not all of us, will probably have opportunities to be both at the same time. <laughs> and I think it, the more we understand that, the more we understand that that is the nature of the fallen heart, that is, that is the reality of what happens when we choose to be our own gods. And that scapegoats aren't going to save us. Because if you look back to the garden, this is the, this is the cry of the primordial heart. This is the, this is the woman in the garden saying, it wasn't me, it was the serpent. And it was the man saying, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. It's the casting of our blame. I am not guilty, it's their fault I'm this way. I had this discussion with my brother who, who wants my dad to be responsible for every broken thing in his life and I'm like, Jared, you and I are our own people. And I promise you we can sin just fine without or with our father. And nobody is responsible. God is not going to hold our father responsible for the ways that we mistreat others. We can't say, oh, yeah, well, I, I only beat my kids because my father beat me. Like, that's not okay. That isn't actually, that doesn't, that doesn't stand. <laughs> that doesn't even stand in a secular culture is that we have a responsibility to bear. And for us, all God is asking of us is to acknowledge that we're broken, to acknowledge that without him, we make giant messes of our lives. Our ignorance does not minimize the enormity of our guilt. We have no excuse. God has spoken and by his word, we shall be judged. The fact of the matter is that we couldn't survive close examination. We have committed treason and we simply do not know what to do with our consciences. And this is why there is so much guilt and shame in our world. People are just weighed down with it, weighed down with the weight of existence. This year has been an unbelievable year in which we have seen uh, the scapegoating happening. I'm this way because of you. No, I'm this way because of you. 
and that pointing of fingers at the left against the right and the right against the left, conversations of who's to blame for the, way, the ways that society functions right now, the tensions in, in the wars, even, even around race, and it's so heartbreaking because what we are told in scripture is that there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ. And we are to look at all people and it doesn't matter if they're a person on the other side of where you stand uh, philosophically, where your convictions lie, because we do not have people that we are called to not love. Because our enemy is the very person that we're left on this earth to serve. Because when God prepares a table for us before our enemies, as it says in Psalm 23, it isn't to make our enemies hungry. It is to actually be an invitation to them to come and sit at the table and meet the king that is feeding us. That his very life was poured out for a world full of enemies. We were once enemies, the scripture declares. And the moment we realize that it is our guilt that actually killed God. But the beautiful news is that death could not keep him because he's also the author of life. We have to understand that all forgiveness is suffering. And Jesus suffered in ways that we cannot imagine. Some people will say, God, how could I put my trust in a God that has never sinned. I mean, he's not really human. I mean, it's like trusting in Superman or something. He, you know, he was, he was in, impermeable to, to sin. He was impervious to, he, he didn't, he, he wasn't infected by it. And so he can't truly understand the human experience. If sin is what I am, how could Jesus truly understand me? No, he who knew no sin became sin. Which means that he did not sin, but he did take sin into himself. And he experienced the consequences of it in ways that we cannot imagine. And in other words, I believe that Jesus tasted hell on our behalf. He experienced the ultimate consequence of sin, which is separation. For what was the thing that he cried out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. How could there have been a rift within the Godhead? How could the Father and Son be separated from one another? Sin separates. The reality is, is that we all feel the effects of it because what it does is it separates us from God, from one another, and ultimately even divides us within our own hearts and minds. This is why mental illness <laughs> is a massive problem. Of course it's a problem in an increasing problem in a world that says all the answers to your dilemmas are found by looking inward. I think looking inward is the greatest way to make, your, make yourself split in half. For every one look you take into your twisted heart, we should take 10 looks to Jesus. I haven't discovered much worth looking at for very long when I just look inward. And I think that this is a deep, deep, problem that we need to understand that is a theological problem first and foremost. So what do we have in this statement? In Jesus crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, what they do. He is saying, proclaiming over the world a forgiveness that actually is made possible through the very thing he is doing when he says it. 
One of the most powerful things about the statements from the cross is Jesus is essentially preaching and demonstrating what he's preaching. He is the subject of what he is preaching. He is the answer to the things that he's declaring. He is the solution. He is actually the fill of what, it's not just words spoken. He is the living word of God demonstrating God's love to a broken and sinful humanity by allowing the worst that man can do to be brought upon himself. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay down my life willingly. He allowed himself to be murdered so that you could live. And this beautiful reality of the forgiveness that is in Christ is this. What does he say when he introduces communion? This is my blood, the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. Every time we drink of the cup and we eat of the bread, we are remembering that Jesus was broken for us so that we could be made whole that his blood was spilled for us because blood, life is in the blood. And his blood was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. Our forgiveness is not dependent upon our ability to remember everything we do wrong and bring it to him every time we think of it. This was my great fault when I first got saved is I thought I'm only forgiven of the things that I confess. But how can I know, even here he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How can I confess everything if I don't even know what I'm doing is sin? And there were so many things. The first thing I said when I got saved is I ran and told my friends, I'm like, you're not gonna effing believe it. I just met effing Jesus. Isn't that the, I must have said like five other expletives in excitement. And they're like, that's good. I think that they were trying to get their head around like, I don't think that's how they talk, though. Uh, you know, there, there were so many things that I didn't even know. I, I didn't know that I wasn't a good husband when I got saved. I didn't know that I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't caring for Darcy in a way. I was still just as self-centered, just as self-focused, but I had at least recognized that I was lost and I needed someone to save me. And so it is that, the, that, that when I asked God to forgive me, he didn't just forgive me for the things I remembered. My forgiveness was complete before I even asked for forgiveness because all sin was dealt with on the cross, past, present, and future for all people. Doesn't mean that all people will be saved, but salvation was worked out. It was completed the saddest reality is that people will say no to God's yes. The saddest reality is that the spirit can awaken someone to the truth of who Jesus is and they can still turn their back and say, I choose to be my own God. That is the blasphemous sin that Jesus speaks of. For the only sin that can truly separate us forever is to say no to Jesus, the only solution to our sin. And so his forgiveness, I didn't understand that. I thought, no, I've got to remember everything. And so I kept praying the sinner's prayer again and again. Lord Jesus, please save me. I just thought of a bunch of things I didn't even think of the first time, so I probably am not totally saved. Which led me to even leading a friend to the Lord. And I told him when he prayed with me, I said, I don't totally know if it's worked. I think it works. 
I'm not sure that I'm saved, but I'm happy to lead you in the prayer. I'm going to pray it again anyway. So just let's pray this together. And at once again, for like the hundredth time, Jesus, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. Come into my heart by your Holy Spirit. And then the next day I'd be like, dang it, I just discovered that I'm a horrible husband. Lord Jesus, please save me. <laughs> it was like, it was like you know, the human heart is an idol factory. This is what Luther meant when he said sin boldly. He wasn't saying go out and sin, intentionally <laughs> do things that are bad. He's just saying you can't escape the sin reality. But the good news is that you can't change the fact that Jesus has already dealt with it. And that is why for us, when we understand forgiveness and the power of this first statement, and this is where I want us to land, and I want you to be truly thinking about it. This is the, this is the thing. We as Christians, especially in the West, I would argue have a really hard time being honest about our brokenness. We have a super hard time confessing our sin. And for us, that confession is wrapped up with guilt and shame, but the cross has eradicated guilt and shame. It hasn't eradicated the power of sin in our lives because everything we do is mixture, but it has eradicated once and for all guilt and shame. That's why I reject any cultural statement that is meant to perpetuate shame on people because the gospel is not about shame. The gospel is about a freedom that comes from knowing that we are truly forgiven. Sin no longer can keep me, keep me down with, it, with this guilty conscience. I know that I'm a sinner and I know that Jesus has dealt with sin, all of it. And the power of this is that, is that when I am ready and to recognize that my sin has been dealt with, the reason I continue to confess sin as I recognize it, and even the reason I continue to pray, Lord Jesus, forgive me for the things I'm not aware of, isn't because I'm not already forgiven, but it is the confession that puts me in a place of humility and causes me to recognize that I can't live the Christian life apart from Christ living it in and through me. So here's the thing, unconfessed sin hides God from our reality. When we hide our sin, it actually ends up hiding our God, our Savior. And this is why many Christians can just, just go off the deep end because they have hidden the reality of what they are apart from the Spirit of God. They've hidden those violations from God and from others, and in doing so, they've created duplicity within themselves, and I think it short circuits the intimacy that Christ wants for our lives. And this is why I say when we confess our sin, when we confess our brokenness before God and before one another, it brings us into direct contact with him. Sin becomes the very place where we meet with Jesus. Confess sin. That's why I am, I'm like, people are like, we gotta practice silence. I'm like, hey, fantastic, but not until we practice confession. I am way more interested in the church practicing confession than I am in it practicing silence. When it says be slow to speak and quick to listen, it's not talking about the call for us to be quick to confess our sin, quick to confess Jesus as Lord and quick to confess him and profess him to the lost world. For Jesus says, what you hear in secret, you proclaim from the rooftops. 
We are a witnessing church first and foremost. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we are calling people to life. And Jesus wants us to confess our brokenness. Do you know what, what my definition of a saint is that came to me this weekend? I find people are like, you talk about us being sinners too much and not about being saints enough. New Testament always calls us saints. Here's what a saint is. A saint is a sinner that perpetually confesses and repents. That's what a saint is. A saint is not someone who is morally perfect. A saint is someone who recognizes that without Jesus, they're nothing. A saint is someone who confesses their brokenness because they know it's already dealt with. And when they confess it, it frees them from the lies of the enemy and it puts us out in that open and that vulnerability allows Jesus to then become the conquering king that he is where the spirit has the power to work in and through us. And that's why I believe Door of Hope has to function as a confessing church. We confess we are lost. We confess we are broken. We confess we are sinners because we know that we are forgiven. Listen, guys, Jesus has already worked out your forgiveness. You don't have to fall into the trapping that I did when I first got saved. No one was there to explain it to me. I didn't understand the gospel. The cross is that powerful. Jesus didn't make the possibility of sins being forgiven possible. He actually worked out the reality of a forgiveness that is already yours by simply saying yes to his yes over your life. You can't live your way to salvation. You can only die your way there. And the good death in this statement is the death of our innocence. Lord, I am not innocent. I sped all the way here tonight. I do it every Sunday, even in my wife's Prius, which humiliates me. I sin toward my wife when I'm forced to drive her Prius because I hate that car. I sin every time I see a Prius because I immediately dislike the person driving it just because they're in a car. They haven't even done anything. You might own one. I don't like you when you're in that car. That's my sin. It's okay. I confess it. We work it out. I think Greg's car's dumb, but I, I love him. <laughs> you're going to make me drive that now. I know it. <laughs> Actually, his car's so bad, it's kind of cool. I, I admit it. I admit it. Uh, but here's the reality, we, we are broken people. We, we, we're judgmental, we, we constantly think that we're doing better than others. This is why we confess, because it puts us out in the open and it, and it brings us to a place where the cross always brings us. It brings everybody to an even playing field. Puts everyone in the same place as broken people whom God has come to save. And what a beautiful gift that is. So when we accept that forgiveness, what should it produce in us in closing? This forgiveness is yours. If Jesus is willing to forgive you for everything you have done past, present, and future, how do you know that that forgiveness is settling into a reality in your experience? I'll tell you. It comes through your ability to forgive. It is evidenced by your ability to forgive. When my dad told me that he was mad at me because I didn't want to be with him when I was two years old and that he held on to this grudge toward me my entire life because as a two-year-old, I didn't want him to take me away from my mom and he said, I'm still mad at you for that. I remember being in the moment angered 
because it was so absurd. I'm like, I was two. And he's like, I don't care. I was mad. You should have wanted to be with me. I'm your dad. I'm like, I don't, how can, what do I even say to that? I'm with you right now. I've flown to Alaska to be with you. And there I am sitting in this smoke-filled room and my dad in his frustration is smoking a cigarette and he's looking out the window at this dark snow-covered landscape. And, he, and, and as we're sitting there and in, in the background is playing Little House on the Prairie and, and I used to watch Little House on the Prairie as a kid. Some of you are younger. Most of you have probably seen at least a clip of it. But the main... The, the dad, Pa Ingalls, <laughs> uh, in this particular episode is the episode where his son is dying and he's, and he's in a field and he's pleading with God to save his son, pleading with him. And, and I remember there was this kind of this, this softening of my heart toward my father as I looked over, I looked at the screen and I saw Pa Ingalls pleading for his son and I looked over at my dad who's looking out the window and I realized that I am trying to get out of my dad something that I can't get out of him and it's not even my place necessarily to do it. What I have to be for my father is a conduit of God's grace. And I just felt this compassion for him and I saw him as a child and I just looked at him and said, Dad, I'm sorry. I told him I was sorry that he felt hurt that I didn't want to be with him when I was two. I'm a, here I am sitting with him at 44 years old and I'm telling him I'm sorry for something I did that I don't even remember. And it was weird, I meant it. I'm sorry, Dad. Because what I saw was not the absurdity of the words but the legitimacy of his pain. Whether he caused it or not, I felt his pain. And I said, I'm sorry, Dad. And he said, it's okay, son. Your old man's usually tougher than this. I love you. And I said, I love you too, Dad. And as I watched Pa Ingalls pray, Father, save my son, I found myself in that moment praying the exact same thing for my dad. Father, save my father. Save my dad. I forgive him. I love him. I know you love him, and I know you've forgiven him. And we can't claim forgiveness for ourselves and refuse it for others. We can't say I have faith in Jesus and be faithless when it comes to the lost world that we live in. We can't say I hope in a future with Jesus and withhold hope for the hopeless. We can't say I love Jesus and be unloving toward those that are lost and broken. You guys, Jesus on your worst day loves you. If you don't know him tonight, the scripture is clear. That yes, he died a death that we cannot imagine. And something supernatural happened on that cross. When he died on the cross of Calvary, we are told that he carried on himself the sin, the brokenness of humanity that literally caused a separation between the father and the son. And in that separation, God mysteriously worked out the salvation that is possible for humanity. It's an actual event. We call it the Christ event because it was the moment that history changed, that time changed forever. 
It became the beginning of a new dawn. It became the starting point of the end of the age. It became the entrance into the age of grace in which we find ourselves today. Because what we believe as Christians, if you do not know the gospel, is that yes, Jesus died, and yes, he was buried, but on the third day he rose from the dead, which is what we get to celebrate on Easter. And it wasn't resuscitation, it was resurrection. It was something altogether new. It is a picture of the new creation that all of us get to hope for and hope in and trust in, in a world where life is temporary and people can be taken from us in a moment. That any of us could die on the way home tonight, but you don't have to die not knowing where you're gonna spend eternity because all of us know in the depths of our being that we were made for more than what we're experiencing. We just don't know how to get at it. Most of the things we pursue, even the empty things that we pursue, is an attempt to fill the longing that only God can fill. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever answers, I will come in and dine with him and her. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will make my home within you. Because the temple of God is no longer the church building, but it is the people who have become born again. And that is those who have put their faith in Jesus. They recognize their guilt and they cry out to God and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. And he's not asking for you to give him the bad parts of you. What Jesus wants is the right to be responsible for the whole person. So we don't give him this or that part. That's why we don't have to try to remember every bad thing we ever did. It's just the simple recognition, Jesus, I'm done being my own God. I want you to be the God that you are. Forgive me of my sins. Place your Holy Spirit within me and make me a new creation. For what does the scripture say? Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be what? Saved. So let's stand together in this moment. And let's simply pray this prayer together. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never prayed to receive Christ. Um, and I just encourage you, if you feel compelled that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins and that he rose from the dead, you don't have to, there's no way that you're gonna understand everything there is to know about the gospel. We apprehend far more than we comprehend when we first come to faith. If there is something in you, so like this, there is something about this, I need this. For me, it was Jesus is compelling. Jesus is God. I believe it. And I don't even know why I fully believe it, but I'm gonna trust him. And I just ask you guys to pray with me because even for us who have prayed the prayer, a prayer that declares our lostness and God's goodness, our brokenness and his radical one-way love toward us, our prayer to invite his spirit to fill us and lead us toward Jesus in increasing degrees of intimacy, I think we need to pray that prayer again, not because we need to get saved again, but because we've been saved and are being saved and shall be saved. And what I mean by that is we need to remind ourselves again and again of the gospel and why it is that we have put our trust in Jesus because he is the son of God and he deserves our absolute allegiance. And so just pray 
with me these words. Pray out loud with me. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are sinners. Lord, I need your forgiveness to be my reality every moment. Cleanse me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Allow me to experience the newness of life that is found in you alone. Jesus, you are Lord. And I am not. I surrender to you. Now make me a conduit of your love, of your forgiveness to a lost world. Amen.